Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm not going to try to get you enlightened tonight. I'll let James. I'll let James handle that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit. I have a number of things to share, and I want to leave time for a discussion. Um, but generally, the theme is politics. So why why might that be the case? I seem to be transfixed with these panels of people talking. They're very, they're very articulate. I, I really think the journalists are doing a wonderful job these, these days. But uh, it's pretty captivating. It, it reminds me of that cartoon in Mad Magazine, Spy versus Spy. Remember that? It's quite exciting. But uh, a few days ago, the 1st of May, I went to my favorite bookstore, and there was a sign on the door uh, they, saying that they were closed for the day. And then they had put up this statement by Gary Snyder, the poet. It says, Let's raise a toast to all those farmers, workers, artists, and intellectuals of the last 100 years. This was May 1st, yes. Who, without thought of fame or profit, whose motivations were compassionate and humanitarian, worked tirelessly in their dream of a worldwide socialist revolution, who believed and hoped that a new world was dawning, and that their work would contribute to a society in which one class does not exploit another, where one ethnic group or one nation does not try to expand itself over another, and where men and women live freely as equals. What we have now is nervous third-world fundamentalism and developed-world global greed. The failure of socialism is the tragedy of the 20th century, and on this day, May Day, At least we should honor the memory of those who struggled for the dream of what socialism might have been and begin a new way again. Gary Snyder, May Day Toast for the Workers of the World. Um, I uh, saw the Dalai Lama when he came to town maybe eight years ago now. And he was interviewed in, at UC Berkeley by Orville Schell. And he was reminiscing about his life uh, when he was still in Lhasa and he, he was still ruling Tibet. And he said the Chinese invited him to be- Beijing uh, for some conferences and some discussions. And, and he said after being there for a while, he said, I just couldn't understand how they can call themselves communists, seeing the hierarchy and the way they conducted their affairs. And then he said, for me, I think I'm half Buddhist, half Marxist. Mm -hmm. 
And the audience gasped. You know, I mean, Marxism, socialism, thats those are dirty words in America. And I've heard, since then, I've heard him say a number of times that he thinks of himself as a socialist. And I think the case could be made that the Buddha and his followers were living in a socialist society. Nobody had any private property, uh, you know, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need, was sort of what uh, they lived. Uh, Interesting. I interviewed uh, Allen Ginsberg once when he he had gone to China to teach beat poetry in Chinese universities. He said, it's ironic that Chairman Mao tried to eliminate Buddhism and the bodhisattva practices in China, which is precisely what could have made their socialism work. Maybe the role of Westerners will be to reintroduce the essential active form of meditation to China. There's an idea for you, huh? A a Peace Corps of meditation teachers. So, socialism. What about capitalism? Abby Hoffman said, all isms should be wasms. Capitalism, unfortunately, sort of runs on the principle of more to desire, more, more, more. I do not believe that a multiplication of wants and machinery contrived to supply them is taking the world a single step nearer to its goal. I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time to increase animal appetites and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. If modern civilization stands for all this, and I have understood it to do so, I call it satanic. Mohandas Gandhi. What will be enough? When will we stop wanting? That's why I think what we do here in the meditation halls, uh, is really revolutionary because it's teaching us how to live uh, maybe a little more simply and to find our pleasures and our goals, our satisfaction, uh, not in things and not in consumption, but in simply being, simply living. Uh, It's a stretch. We're so programmed. Way back in uh, the 1970s, I was doing a radio show with a friend, and we we did this uh, advertisement. This was a time that was known as the... There was a phenomenon going on called the energy crisis. And they rationed gas, so you could only buy gasoline 
if your license plate number ended in a certain in an odd or even you would switch days i was odd <laughs> so this was our this was our uh, commercial are you worried about the energy crisis disgusted with high utility bills fed up with being an energy victim then take control of your life today and make your home energy self-sufficient with U.S. Atoms Home Nuclear Reactor. Small enough to fit into your abandoned fallout shelter, yet powerful enough to power your major home appliances, including your washer, dryer, stove, refrigerator, freezer, microwave, waffle iron, toaster, coffee maker, mixer, blender, food processor, crock pot, electric wok, electric knife, knife sharpener, can opener, popcorn popper, cheese grater, meat slicer, dishwasher, garbage disposal, trash compactor, electric broom, vacuum cleaner, water heater, hot tub sauna, water pick, electric toothbrush, alarm clock, AM, FM radio, tape deck, turntable, amplifiers, color television, VCR, electric lights, and your automatic garage door opener. It goes on further, but your home nuclear reactor comes fully equipped with a lightweight plastic containment vessel and easy-to-follow emergency instructions in case of a mini meltdown. (laughs) If you order today, you'll receive free directions on how to assemble a home-sized atom bomb out of your leftover (laughs) nuclear wastes, enabling you to become a dominant military power in your very own neighborhood. Now, I've, it's funny. It sounds funny. Uh, but I bet, I bet you own almost every one of the implements that we mentioned. So much. We have so much. If there's ever been proof solid of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, it is our civilization. I was uh, struck, and I'm, I'm amazed. In the 1830s, Alex de Tocqueville came and wrote a book about America and Americans. He wrote, I've seen the freest, best educated of men in circumstances, the happiest to be found in the world, yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed serious, almost sad, even in their pleasures because they never stop thinking of the good things they have not got. He saw that in us in 1930. Sorry, 1830. How come? How could he see? Are we really that distinct, distinctive? Or is it because we inherited this great continent? We got the best continent in the world, really. We should give, you should give thanks every day for living in, in Turtle Island. So this is what my friend and fellow teacher, Joanna Macy, says. She's probably been here a few times speaking to you. She says... Uh, we're going to have to want different things and seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in our global economy. 
The practice of being is a revolutionary act. Meditation is a revolutionary act. You're not creating any more global warming. You're not, you know, heating up the atmosphere. You're not wanting. The Buddha said that true happiness comes from a peaceful mind. That that's really the highest, he calls it the highest happiness. You know when you're doing practice and you hit that sweet spot where everything is just kind of floats through and nothing sticks and there's no, the mind's not moving toward something or away from something. You're not hungry for something. You're not greedy. You're not wanting. You're okay just being. You could live there more and more. And when you think about our economies and uh, the way we're living now, and you start to look around and listen to what the scientists are saying about what's happening to the planet, the species extinction, fifth largest species extinction in biological history, seems to be happening up to a hundred times faster than, than usual. Uh, amazing statistics of how human overpopulation for one thing, but then consumption levels are really uh, harming the planet and, and consuming all the natural resources. Um, we're, so we're going to have to change, and this is part of what the change, how the change can manifest, how it can happen with the least, perhaps, the least suffering. Otherwise, it's, you know, fighting with other nations, tribes against tribes. The developed industrialized nations of the world cannot remain secure islands of prosperity in a seething sea of poverty. The storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth from which there is no shelter in isolation and armaments. The storm will not abate until a just distribution of the fruits of the earth enables people everywhere to live in dignity and human decency. That's Martin Luther King. This was a report that I just printed out. The number of wild animals living on Earth is set to fall by two-thirds by 2020, according to a new report on the mass extinction. The most comprehensive uh, analysis to date indicates the animal populations fell by 58% between 1970 and 2012, 58% less animals with losses on track to reach 67% by 2020. Um, Well, I won't, I mean, I won't go into it any further. I find what is really heart-wrenching, and I won't do it tonight because it is so heart-wrenching, is to read the list 
of endangered species. Because when you name, when you hear their names, you can see them, you can picture them as part of your world. Um, I took a vow a number of years ago that whenever I speak publicly that I will talk uh, to some degree about endangered species. Now, that's, that brings me to the fact that, uh, you know, I don't know, James read last week, he read something that I had written about uh, Earth Day, right? About, uh, on Earth Day. Or the week after. Anyway, um, it was about what reasons to have hope. And uh, there are a lot of good reasons to have hope. One is that the word ecology didn't come into general usage until almost 1960. The first UN conference on the environment was in 1970. That we as a species are just now waking up to the immensity of, a, of the damage we've done and what is going to be required to change it. So it's not, it's like, if you take the big picture, you know, it's like we're not to blame. We're still working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers, right? Really, that's what's uh, created this brain uh, over a few million years. And uh, so, you know, that explains our addiction to shopping. If, if it's out there, you go get it, you know. It's, <laughs> it's very simple. But we're beginning to understand that and understand that about ourselves and also understand that the next object that we purchase, the next thing we consume, is not going to make us happy. We should see that very clearly. So that's, that's some help, is, is perspective on how, on how recent it is, our understanding of, of the dilemma. All parts of the earth are built over, trampled, full of commerce. Farms and fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated. Swamps are drained. Today's towns towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, governments, and human growth now so clogs the world it can barely support us. As our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature begins to fail us. That was written by Roman historian Terulian in 150 AD. <laughs> I guess it comes in cycles, and uh, you know. I think this is coheres a little bit, right? What I'm doing here, picking these out. And, 
I ran across this. Uh, I was doing some research. I've been doing a, a, a workshop called uh, Crazy Wisdom, where we talk about and we read excerpts from all the great gestures and comics and playwrights and philosophers over the years, Zen masters. And, and I found this in uh, the play by Aristophanes, who's considered the father of modern comedy. Uh, he wrote a, a play called The Birds. And uh, the whole play is built around the birds building a wall. And they realize that they live between the gods and the humans. And the gods are always coming down to you know mess around and have a good time. And so they decide they'll build a wall and they'll charge the gods if they want to come down. And, <laughs> and they'll charge the humans if they want to make prayers. They'll make sure that they pay a, a cover charge of some kind. Anyway, so this is uh, one of the one of the birds says, once the wall's built, you must send an embassy to Zeus and lay your grievances before him. If he denies them, if he temporizes, then you should declare a holy war against the whole of Olympus. No more free passage for divinities in an obvious state of erection on their way through your land to flirt with their girls. As for mankind, you must send another bird to them, a herald to announce that from now on, since the birds are king, the first sacrifices must be made to them, and then, if convenient, to the Olympic gods. But even in sacrifices to the gods, an appropriate bird must be adored as well. <laughs> Walls. Capitalism. Somebody once said, capitalism is the oppression of one class by another class. And communism is just the reverse. (laughs) So, that's politics. Now I want to read something else here. This is a radio script that uh, I've done before about the summer of love. You may have noticed that there's a lot of talk and events being prepared and promoted about the summer of love, which was what took place here in the Bay Area, predominantly in the Bay Area, I think almost exclusively in the Bay Area, (laughs) uh, way back in 19... 77. I mean, 67, sorry. And uh, I think it's uh, it, it's context for what we do. Sometimes we, we do meditation practice in a kind of vacuum and don't reflect on the fact that uh, if we would have been born 10, 20 years earlier, you never would have heard of the Buddha or mindfulness or that this is a recent phenomena for Westerners and uh, we're just starting to become familiar with it. And I think it's really a kind of mini 
mini uh, uprising, revolution in and of itself. So this is, you know, this is uh, about that era. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Are you hip yet? Can you dig it? If not, just put some flowers in your hair, some flowers in your pipe. And suddenly we're in San Francisco during one of those dreamy summers of love, 1967 or 68, and you've started the day with a toke or two, and now you're headed toward the park to see what's happening, and you're grooving on the scene. When a Volkswagen bus full of laughing hippies drives by with Sergeant Pepper blasting away on the radio, And suddenly you can't decide whether to spend the day trying to save the world or just savor the world. And this is Scoop, trying to remember what it was like almost 50 years ago when the world was young. And our magical mystery tour begins a few decades before the summer of love, just after World War II when America became a superpower, taking over the former European colonies with television, and Coca-Cola, and dreams too rich to ever be fulfilled. It was an America where the cars had started to grow fins, and the terrorists were called communists, and the American dream was just starting to put everyone to sleep. And in the heart of the new empire, a bunch of young rogues and visionaries began to articulate a different sensibility, a counterculture a movement that drew on the ideas of European Dada and existentialism, a movement that turned to the East, to the Tao, to the Buddha, to the J.J. Ram, a movement that was fueled by the drumbeats of Africa and found its American voice in the musical forms of jazz and rock and roll and in the writings of the beatniks. It was the gang of Jack Kerouac burst upon the scene, mad to live, and to dig every note in the great riff of life, driven along the road by the crazy looping solos of Charlie Parker. And for anyone like myself, who had always felt like an outsider in America, it was a thrill to read Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, written way back in 1956, in which he denounces the god of war and commerce that had already begun to take over the soul of our nation. He named that god Moloch the loveless, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies. But the beatniks were really romantics and mystics at heart. As Ginsburg said, they were beatifically beat, searching for what Kerouac called the golden eternity. And in their travels, they saw the light come shining down from the east, And they soon started introducing strange new words into the hipster's jive. Words like karma and dharma and mantra and tantra. It all sounded so exotic. I finally decided to come to San Francisco to become a beatnik. But it was 1967. (laughs) Too late to make the scene, man. So I got assigned to the hippies instead. And I'm proud to say I was a hippie. We were idealistic, optimistic, flower children. We dragged Bohemia out of the dark bars and coffee houses for a few brief years of colorful frolicking in the sun, 
celebrating the age of Aquarius, always accompanied by the ecstatic wail of electric guitars. And I was one of those flower children, walking around in tie-dye, sporting a wild-looking Jufro. (laughs) And I was one of those who spent a lot of time in the late 60s experimenting with consciousness. Yes, by ingesting illegal substances, but also through meditation and yoga and the new psychologies of gestalt and breathwork. I was part of that grand conspiracy of young people who at least for a few years refused to join the straits and the consumer economy known to us as the system. We rejected the old world mentality of our parents with their Depression-era fears of scarcity and war and their uptight Puritan morality. And instead, we sought a new consciousness, one that could celebrate life and sexuality and tune into nature and embrace all the world as one. Okay, so maybe we were a little naive. Or maybe we just had it too good. As the psychologist Paul Goodman wrote in his famous book, Growing Up Absurd, quote, It was destined that the children of affluence who grew up without toilet training would turn out to be daring, disobedient, and simple-minded. End quote. So maybe that's why we started chanting, we want the world and we want it now. (laughs) We were poorly potty trained and prone to tantrums. But we were trying to create a better world and also trying to stop our government from conducting a criminal, horrific war. And we held some great protests like the 1967 March on Washington when we caused the Pentagon to levitate. That's right, we just surrounded the building, chanted Om, and up it went. (laughs) On that day, we were super hippies. But at heart, the hippies weren't very political. We had no analysis or five-year plan. Instead, our revolution was expressed in gatherings known as be-ins, communal celebrations of just being. Here's the San Francisco Oracle, a Haight-Ashbury journal back in 1967 announcing that the first human be-in would take place in Golden Gate Park. Quote, The spiritual revolution will be manifest and proven. We will shower the nation with waves of ecstasy and purification. Fear will be washed away. Ignorance exposed to sunlight. Prophets and empire will lie drying on deserted beaches. Yes, it was a spiritual revolution. And if the hippies have a legacy, it's in the yoga and meditation centers now existing in every town in America. And it's also in the modern environmental movement that got its start in the late 60s with back-to-the-land visions of ecotopia plus a whole earth catalog of appropriate technologies now becoming necessary for our survival. And the hippies were right and are still right on. It's time to scale down and simplify. It's time to recreate community and celebrate existence and make a whole new world full of peace, love, and good vibes. Remember? So in honor of the hippie legacy, I propose that somewhere, maybe on the mall in Washington, D.C., there should be a statue. Where is it? 
erected to the unknown hippie. People could visit and leave old buttons, beads, and flowers. And maybe in honor of all the offbeat ancestors who seeded the so-called New Age, we could hold an annual day of remembrance and tribute. A day when we turn off all our isolating computers and just go out into the streets and maybe start talking to people about life or how to end all the disgusting wars or deal with climate change. Or else we could go to the park and just sit down and feel the earth like the hippies used to do, and then vow to do everything we can to see that our little biosphere project continues this awesome experiment in life and consciousness. And then, brothers and sisters, even if it's just for a few hours, banish your sorrow over what's happening to the world. Let go of the fear and the greed and have yourself a be-in. Celebrate life and the mystery of it all, and then... Remember, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. So, hippies, my tribute to them, my tribute to the summer of love. How many of you were here for the summer of love? Was it good? (laughs) Did you enjoy it? (laughs) <laughs> I think it w- it's unreproducible. I think it's un- impossible to uh, create the conditions and causes that were present. Questions, uh, comments, uh, ideas. Ways to solve the crises of the world, aside from meditation, or you can add that, certainly. I've always been a kind of a megalomaniac, is that the word? I try to see the big picture, I, and I, you know, sometimes I conflate it or pump it up, but I, I think there's something very special going on right now. The mindfulness revolution. And, you know, there'll be probably the great majority of people who find mindfulness in meditation practice will probably not become Buddhists or necessarily get interested in reading about Buddhism or what the Buddha taught. Which is actually, if you haven't read it, you can start with the volumes of discourses, multiple volumes of discourses, the, ma- the, the, the way he mapped it all out, or his followers anyway, is just exquisite. It is a brilliant, brilliant piece of uh, transmission of, of how to live. Um, just astonishing. But anyway, I, I really think there's a there's a great movement going on. You've really piqued my curiosity. The, what is the book? Well, the book the book is the Majjhima Minukaya, 
Majimakaya, the middle length discourses. And there are longer length discourses. And, and uh, but I, I don't, I mean, I, I think you, you should definitely read about it, but there are so many good interpretations and reading, reading the, the actual uh, translation of the Pali into English can be somewhat tedious and, and there's a book, Joseph Goldstein just put out a book called Mind, uh, Mindfulness, which is a really great book. He's a very, very clear writer and uh, really shows how what the Buddha was teaching, you know, ha- the momentum of it and how it builds. And it's a great book. We had a, uh, another speaker, um, an abbot, or a, he was a monk who, who basically said that he did not feel that mindfulness could be separated from Buddhism, even though, you know, you can see it in corporate venues now, etc. How do you feel about that? Oh, yeah. I think the Buddha was, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. You know, he was teaching people how to escape the, the programming of their minds to create, that makes them suffer. He was trying to, you know, f- offer us a, a path that he, he found or he, he elaborated on. And, uh, yeah, he doesn't have to be, you know... A Buddhist. You don't have to be a Buddhist. You can be a Buddha. Yeah. Oh, were you gonna go ahead? Um, yeah, the uh, one of the modern day scholars of this, uh, Don Don Lopez. Uh, calls mindfulness meditation the scientific Buddha. Yes, beautiful. Yeah, and, and I think he had something there. I, I've talked to him about this, actually. He was here in Berkeley one time, and he feels pretty strongly about it, that it's not Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, well, it's still, I think it's still relevant, like you're saying. It's still it's, it's having an impression. It is, it is kind of awakening people to a different, way of thinking and being in the world. Absolutely. And you could say that the Buddha was the first scientist. I mean, he mindfulness, developing mindfulness is like the scientific method. You observe what's going on without reacting, uh, trying to be as objective as possible about what you're seeing. And so in this case, it's just trying to be as objective as possible about you as the object, uh, as the subject. So you develop this quality of mindfulness, and then you step out of the flow, and you, you begin to see it and see how it's tied in knots and how it causes your suffering. And only after you see the way it, the way it works can you begin to extricate yourself from the, the conditioning of your mind. It's sort of like, it feels like a, another a step in evolution in some way. You know, that we're taking evolution into our own hands. And Well, this is what we got, we got fed, we got saddled with, if you will. Uh, 
in the 1960s, uh, one scientist, one brain scientist, came out with the triune brain theory, that we actually have three brains, we don't have one brain. We have the, the uh, reptilian brain, the brain stem, the mammalian brain, the, the kind of the limbic system, and then the new human brain, or neocortex. And his uh, research led him to believe that we use the new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we weren't so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> and anybody who's done any degree of meditation really starts to see up close and personal how the mind is just filled with a constant wheel of desire and fear and aggression and craziness. Thank you. Uh, so I'm deeply interested in dismantling capitalism. <laughs> and it's taken me to uh, learn about many things, including Buddhist economics. And I just recently came back from Bhutan, looking at gross national happiness, and Madragon, looking at cooperative ecosystems. And the thing that I continue to see is there's many beautiful examples of places that are putting people and planet before profit or that are valuing other things. And that uh -huh. is what I inherently feel that Buddhist economics is. It's, it's valuing the identifying of suffering and the alleviating of suffering. The only, the issue that I'm seeing is that these different systems, whether you call it gift economics, Buddhist economics, cooperative economics, solidarity economics, they are not inherently competitive. Competition is not something of interest. And so while it's still in a capitalist sea, yeah. it can't compete. And so you see capitalism co-opting and eating that which is trying to compete against it because it's not inherently competitive. So I see this... An excellent, excellent Marxist uh, interpretation there. I'm yeah, and I'm, see, and I'm seeing this co-opting even of the summer of love. I'm seeing these these billboards and these things and really making it this flashy party and this sales thing that doesn't feel true to what you read. Right, what, what, what it was really all about, yeah. And so my question is, you know, you know, both as individuals as we are embodying Buddhist economics or new ways of being, and also as systems and as, you know, new systems, if they're not inherently competitive, then how can we win? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's beautiful, beautiful. Uh, there's a Taoist saying, yield and overcome. You know, uh, that may be that it will sort of run its course uh, on its own. And so rather than worry about it, we construct our own economy or, you know, people construct their own economy. And if we're having more fun, that's the thing, you know, if you're living in, in and having more satisfaction, then they'll they'll come to you. You don't have to compete. Um, I think there's a new book out called Buddhist Economics. I think there's a it, it, the title, yeah, Claire Brown. Yeah. The 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 Dalai Lama said uh, that his well his politics is kindness and his. Uh, 
economics is sufficiency. Just what you need. Just take what you need. Boy, I, I read that if everyone on the planet lived the lifestyle that, that we do here in North America, it would take five planets to, to uh, sustain us or to keep that level of consumption going. Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, any any other uh, good ideas? Going back to the earlier question of uh, Buddhism versus mind versus or inclusive mindfulness. Um, can mindfulness devoid of uh, the five precepts or developing the paramis um, really be effective for personal growth? Or have you seen that? Uh, or, would, or do you think mindfulness is powerful enough and people see what they do and that makes them suffer that they will grow without the understanding of that? I, um well, I, I think I've seen basketball players be mindful without <laughs> thinking about ethics or the paramis or anything like that. Uh, I th- yeah, I think it can be used outside of the structure of the Dharma. And I think people, you know, if, you, um, if you're guided well, the mindfulness will lead you to the precepts and the Paramis and the Four Noble Truths, the whole, the whole path will be revealed. You felt happiness. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think mindfulness is, is a magic... Uh, a magic power that we've been given by evolution. This ability to step outside of ourselves and see ourselves like like we can. Well, if there's no further questions or comments, I'm going to read you a poem of mine. And then share the merit. Oh, you have a question or a comment? No, I, I, I guess I wanted to capitalize on your being here to ask you this question, which I, I think... Capitalize. I know. Yeah. Oh, my aching head. You, you want to invest in <laughs> being, my being here. Anyway, we, we let that go with equanimity um, and, and forgiveness. Um, so you bring to our sangha politics and extinction. And I guess I, want, I would like you to, I don't know, offer how do we carry the meditation practice with 
the facing. You, I, I guess I want, I want to know how you do it because you don't, you don't shelter yourself. So how do you juggle it? The meditation um, practice with the... bring with it the, into our practices? The, the meditation practice with the news? How do I juggle the two? Um, or, well, I guess it's, tr- you know, it's like my experience of, of meditation is that I, that I open and I become a better listener, but I also become more porous. And um, then there's the news, mm-hmm. which is frustrating um, scary, ups- yeah. a scary, upsetting, um, feelings of powerlessness, mm-hmm. and they feel at, at times a counterpoint. But I, I guess, because of who you are, I guess I would like you to share how you, how you carry this. Um, I don't think I, I don't really have a secret, uh, a secret way of doing it. I. I if I keep my meditation practice up, I find that I uh, can more easily go through the day and the day's business without letting the news sort of grab me and you know really affect me. I, you could think of it as escaping, I guess, but I think the best way I can change the world is to be what I want people to be or if I'm if I'm light and and carrying my my life uh, without a lot of uh, intensity and desires that that's going to rub off in the people around me and you know that that's really that's really the number one thing we have to do and then there's all the you know political work and I think just keeping your practice up and strong is uh, is the way. Ramdas puts uh, like he has a little picture of Trump now on his altar. You know, occasionally sends him some meta and can't get there quite yet. <laughs> Why I meditate. I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are way too many other things to do. I meditate because when I was younger it was all the rage. I meditate because... Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Alfred E. Newman, et al. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist 
so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head, and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because I'm growing old and I want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. Why I meditate. So let's uh, do the sharing of merit. Um, Ernie, do you want to explain it or be in charge of it? At the end of our sessions, we often call to mind uh, people who are in distress in some way or ill or loved ones who we want to include in our in our circle in our dharma circle so here are a few of the notices i've been given of course we want to include james tonight prayers for fred that he may be free from suffering my son paul and his family are going through a difficult time. For my friend Michael, who will have his second surgery for tongue cancer tomorrow, may he have less pain than last time, be healed and at ease. And for Mike, who needs spiritual help with his stroke. May it be so. May it be so. Let's just sit for a minute and hold all of us in our heart. Capitalists and communists alike, hippies and straight people, May we all find ease and peace. Thank you all for being here. Enjoy your life. Till we meet again, and see you on the path. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.